0: Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles one more time to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at chapter 21 this morning as we conclude our study through this book. Many years ago, a Christian lady came and poured out all of her problems to me, how her marriage was a mess and her grown children were making terrible decisions, how family finances were on the brink and some long-term friendships had come to an end how she was discouraged and depressed she was doubting god's goodness and how she just felt like a complete failure when she suddenly then looked at me in disgust and said but you have no idea what that's like do you your life is just perfect you have the perfect happy wife and the perfect obedient kids and the, the perfect little ministry your christian lives are just all together all the time is that really what you think of me? I responded, shocked. Because you've got it all wrong. I fail as a husband and a father and a pastor and a Christian as much as the next guy. Oh, sure, she said sarcastically. You're, you're a real failure. Yes, I am, I insisted. Aren't we all? In James 3, 2, we read, we all stumble in many ways, which has certainly been true for me in my own Christian life, and I'm confident is true for you in your Christian life as well. Often we we fail Christ in small ways. Occasionally we fail Christ in really big ways. But there's no denying we are all failures as Christians to some degree or another. Just like every other Christian, In church history and every believer in the Bible which is why this final chapter in the Gospel of John is so loved by so many in the interactions recorded here between Jesus and the Apostle Peter no doubt the most famous failure in all the Bible we discover the good news that Jesus doesn't give up on failures or give failures the boot. But rather, Jesus calls those who fail him to continue to follow him nonetheless. Remember how Peter three times denied knowing Jesus in chapter 18, just as Jesus had predicted? Well, now, after reading in chapters 19 and 20 about Jesus' vicarious death and then victorious resurrection, the the climax of the story, the Apostle John concludes in chapter 21 his gospel account by showing how the Savior now responded to the great failure of his disciple. And John records this, no doubt, to encourage us As failures. That Jesus wants to respond the same way. And what we first discover here is that Jesus re-engaged Peter so that he could continue to follow him. So starting in verse one, we read, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other, uh, others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So with Passover and the week long feast of unleavened bread now over in Jerusalem, it seems Jesus' disciples made their way back home to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, as it was also called, uh, named after a nearby town. At the time of our text, we're told that seven of them were gathered together there. Simon Peter, the leader of the bunch, and the second to see the empty tomb at the beginning of chapter 20. Thomas, called the twin, who you'll remember had doubted that Christ had risen until he encountered him at the end of chapter 20 and believed. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, who was the first to confess that Jesus is the son of God in chapter 1, 43 to 50. The sons of Zebedee, who we know from the other gospels, were James and the author of this gospel, John. And then two others of his disciples, maybe Andrew and Philip, who we also were introduced to in chapter 1. Now, the way John writes here, we get the sense that that none of them really knew what to do. Yes, they had met the risen Christ in Jerusalem, but now that they were back home in Galilee, they appear to be confused about what exactly is supposed to happen next. Well, action-oriented Peter decided that instead instead of waiting around for who knows what, he would go back to what he knew, fishing which I think is very significant considering what had just happened. Again, how he had recently denied his master and teacher, something that still would have been fresh on his mind and still tearing him apart. and So failing as a follower of Christ, it seems Peter fell back on what he knew. He fell back on fishing his former trade. You know, my ministry must be over now after that great failure. So I guess I'll go back to what I know, which is very common among Christians. You know, I could give you a long list of former pastors I personally know who, after some failure in ministry, many times just just small failures, sometimes big ones, they return to their former occupation. You know, I failed, I guess I'm done. Or I could give you a long list of lay people who I personally know that tried something new, maybe. A new ministry in the church they'd never done before. Maybe they decided, I'm going to evangelize for the first time. And only failing, they then too fall back. Maybe serving in the church in the way they had before. Or maybe stopping serving at all. I failed. I'm useless. What, what can I possibly do right? I'm done. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've tried to move forward in your Christian life. Maybe you tried a new ministry. Maybe you had sought to be faithful in something you know Christ was calling you to do, but you had never done before, only to fail. And so you too just quickly fell back on what you've known, what you've done before, what's familiar, what's comfortable, as is so common. Well, we see here that for Peter, falling back on what you know didn't work out so well. Because John says they caught nothing. Which seems to be the case every time we see the disciples fishing in the Gospels. Have you ever noticed that? How in all four Gospels, they seem to be the worst fishermen. They never catch anything without a miracle. And when they're not fishing, they're mending the nets. Right? Which maybe was the problem. Maybe that's what was wrong. Bad nets. It's another example of their frequent failures. But I can just imagine what was going on in Peter's mind at this point. Really? Can't catch anything? Can't I do anything right? I just denied Jesus, my Savior, the moment, the moment my life was on the line, the moment the pressure was on. And now I'm going back to what I know, and I can't even do that. I can't even catch one lousy fish. Such a failure. It's really a pathetic picture of Peter that John paints here and throughout the chapter. And so it's no wonder when Jesus shows up, Peter starts to feel hope again. And goes to radical measures to meet up with Jesus. So we read on verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Into the sea. So it was common for fishermen to work throughout the night and then sell a fresh catch of fish in the morning to those who were looking for breakfast, which is what Jesus was doing here. Now, since it was still dark outside, the disciples did not recognize him immediately. But it's interesting when this perfect stranger gave them some fishing advice, right? Try the other side of the boat, they took it, demonstrating again how how poor fishermen they must have been, right? Oh, the other side of the boat. We never would have thought of that. Well, what a difference it made. Their biggest haul yet. That suddenly caused John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to clue in that this wasn't just some stranger. No, this was the Son of God. This was the Savior. This was Jesus, their Lord. Which, interestingly, he told Peter first. Probably because he was the leader of the bunch, but possibly because he also sensed the turmoil in his friend who had failed Jesus so badly. Look, he's back. He's come again to us. He's here. He hasn't given up on you. I love how Peter impulsively responds, just like he does so many other times in the gospel here he he puts on his coat and he just plunges into the sea (laughs) or as it says he he threw himself into the sea it shows a disciple i think desperate to be reunited and restored to his master and teacher who had come looking for him and the others revealing himself with this miraculous catch jesus took the initiative to re-engage peter a promising start but there's more. We read on. Verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were many, so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Notice, first of all, the charcoal fire that Jesus was cooking over. Sound familiar? Well, in chapter 18, John recorded that when Peter three times denied knowing Christ, he was warming himself also, same words, by a charcoal fire that had been made by the high priest's servants. This is certainly something Peter would not have forgotten, which was most likely Jesus' way of subtly saying, hey, I know what happened that other night by another fire. I know you failed me. But second, notice how Jesus abundantly provided for them, 153 large fish. Another eyewitness detail from John that not only verified it was certainly the Lord, but also verified that uh, Jesus would care for them. You know, it was a way of, again, just showing his, his abundant mercy and grace and, and provision. So, yes, soon I will be no longer with you, just like I had earlier said, but I'm going to continue to provide for you. I'm going to continue to give you everything you need and more. But then third and most importantly, notice how Jesus acts here as the host, inviting them to breakfast and then giving bread and fish to each of them conceivably a reminder of the Last Supper, but certainly a re-engagement with them as their Lord and as their friend. In the ancient Near East, when a host extended this kind of hospitality to others, it meant he was committing himself to them and inviting them to do likewise. The invitation, therefore, here to come and dine was really an invitation to continue to follow him as his disciples. Which would have been so reassuring at this point. Especially for Peter standing there by this fire. Yes, Peter, even you who denied me by another charcoal fire only a few days ago. I'm now inviting you to recline with me at this charcoal fire and to recommit yourself to me as I have just recommitted myself to you as your host and to all the others. As we read this, I wonder if if right now Jesus is maybe likewise re-engaging some of you through this story. Some of you who've failed him. He's inviting you now in a similar way to, to recommit yourself to him as he is promised earlier he's a hundred percent committed to you to all who believe that he will never let us go do you remember that this reminds us that what's happening here to peter is something that jesus is inviting us into as well because in in chapter 10 28 he said "Of, of all believers i give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand Jesus re-engaged Peter so that he could continue to follow him. But that's not where the story ends. As good as that is, as hopeful as that is, it goes on and we see now Jesus restored Peter so he could continue to follow him. Verse 15. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Either speaking of more than the other disciples or most likely more than his fishing nets and that old life that he had gone back to. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This may be the most moving moment in the Gospel of John, or if not the whole Bible, to see Jesus' great faithfulness to Peter, the greatest of failures. It's remarkable and so reassuring to failures like you and me. That first Jesus restored Peter's commitment to him. So you'll remember, three times Peter repudiated his commitment to Jesus just before his crucifixion. And those outside the high priest's home said, You also are not one of this man's disciples. Are you? Are you? Are you? I am not. I am not. I am not, he avowed. And then the rooster crowed, just like Jesus said and warned him about. You know, I don't think Peter ever looked at chickens the same way after that night. Just imagine his mornings. Every day, ever since that infamous day, when he would hear the roosters crow. And often roosters, you know, they'll crow at different times of the day. It would have been this heartbreaking reminder that he was a coward. That he was a failure who, when when called out, was utterly uncommitted. Well, now, very intentionally, three times, Jesus restored Peter's commitment just after his resurrection. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. One, two, three. With every confirmation, his commitment to Christ was further restored. Now, much has been made about the different Greek words translated love here, especially how Peter switched from using uh, phileo as he used it twice earlier, which is allegedly a lesser love. And then at the end uses agape, which is allegedly a greater love of total commitment. And maybe you've heard sermons on that before, but scholarly consensus now is that Jesus and Peter both are just using synonyms here for the overall biblical concept of love, which has to do primarily with selflessly, sacrificially committing ourselves to others for their well-being, which Jesus summed up so well earlier in chapter 15, verse 13, where he says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life his friends. That's what true biblical love is. And that's what Jesus was restoring in Peter after he failed. And what he wants to restore in us as well when we fail, if we let him. You know, failure in the Christian life will always turn us in one of two directions. It will either turn us away from Christ in fear, which then leads to to less commitment than before, or our failure will turn us towards Christ in faith, which will then lead to greater commitment than before as we receive his forgiveness. During the infamous reign of Bloody Mary, Queen of England, Archbishop Cranmer, criticized her persecution of Protestants and was eventually then condemned himself to be burnt at the stake. But before the sentence could be carried out, Cranmer recanted his beliefs. He denied the gospel of grace when under pressure and persecution himself. And he lived with that shame, just like Peter, for quite some time. Until, overcome by his conscience, he he fled to Christ also in faith for forgiveness. And his commitment to the Savior and the Scriptures was restored stronger than before. So that now even death could not quell his devotion. And so when, when brought to the stake, it's recorded that the first thing he did was he stretched out his hand the hand in which he had written his denial of the gospel. And he held it to the flames until it was consumed, exclaiming, thou unworthy hand. And then he died a martyr's death in renewed devotion and commitment to Christ. This is what Jesus does for those who fail him. He restores our commitment, our love for the Savior, just like he did for Peter here. But there's more. Jesus also restored Peter's calling. Notice each time Peter renews his loving commitment to Christ, his calling to gospel ministry is renewed with it using pastoral imagery. Jesus says, okay, you love me? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, had taught and took care of his disciples for three years. Well, now they must do the same with others, including Peter, who may have blown it, but still had this call to shepherd the flock and to go on and then teach other men to do likewise, which is exactly what we see in 1 Peter five two to three where he instructs the elders there shepherd the flock of god that is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as god would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock now we should recognize that because of peter's experience of unfaithfulness to christ he was uniquely prepared to shepherd the flock in this way. Not domineering, but humbly ministering as an example to the other sheep who likewise are prone to wander. Listen, his failure as a sheep would actually be how God would make him a success as a shepherd. Which is so often what Jesus does when we fail him as well. He redeems our failures, using them as new opportunities for ministry to others who have likewise failed. After imprisoned for his part in the infamous Watergate scandal, Charles Coulson was converted to Christ and soon after he began prison ministry fellowship. Later in life, after his ministry had gone international and he'd written books and had a wonderful ministry, Coulson made this hopeful observation about his experience. He said, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use in my life. Which is exactly what happened for Peter as Jesus also restored his calling and as he restores ours as well. But then finally we see in verse 8 to 19 that Jesus also restored Peter's confidence. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now it might at first seem kind of odd That right after restoring him to ministry, Jesus would give this prophecy about how Peter would die a martyr's death. Which tradition tells us was by being crucified himself. Yet it really makes perfect sense. Because remember, Peter had vowed he would die for Jesus in chapter 13, 36. But then the moment his life was on the line, what did he do? He denied Jesus instead in chapter 18, 27. Which would have destroyed his confidence to faithfully follow Jesus anymore. And I'm sure we can relate to that too. Oh, I failed you so badly. I'm just going to fail you the next time, Lord. So what does Jesus do? He mercifully restores Peter's confidence by ensuring Peter that the next time he won't fail. Next time his life is on the line, he will be faithful to the end because of what he learned through this initial failure namely not to be overconfident in himself as he so brashly had been in chapter 13 but rather to put his confidence in christ the first time i led music during chapel uh, at the christian university i attended i hardly planned or practiced at all that ah whatever i'll wing it it'll be fine pick some songs well, it showed that I hadn't planned or practiced. Which is why afterwards, as I was leaving the stage, the president of the university, as he was going up, whispered to me, if you want to do this again, be prepared. I was utterly devastated and done. I am never going to lead music for worship again. And I was Followed through with that for quite a while until a friend challenged me to, instead of giving up, learn from my failures. Well, I thought about it and I realized, you know what? I was completely overconfident, underprepared, and I did a lousy job. And so I vowed to never let that happen again, but rather to prayerfully plan and prepare. And that then restored my confidence to continue following Jesus and serving in this particular way. Much like Peter, whom Jesus restored so he could continue to follow him. As he restored his confidence, you can learn from this failure. And you will succeed next time with my help. Which is what he says to each of us today as well. Jesus restored Peter. So he could continue to follow him. But then, thirdly and finally, Jesus refocused Peter so he could continue to follow him. Verse 20 Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, as we see in chapter 13, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. How quickly and easily we can lose focus on Jesus' call to follow him. Getting caught up instead on how other Christians are following him. What they're doing or not doing. How God's unfolding plans are for their lives. You know, let's be honest. It's quite common to show more interest In what's going on in other Christians, their maturity in ministry, their faith, their failures, their future, than our own. And I'll be honest, this is especially a strong temptation for those who are in full-time ministry or those who are in lay ministry as well. But for me, I know my job is to take note of how all of you are doing in your Christian life so I can minister God's word to you more effectively But it's easy to lose sight then of how I am doing in my Christian life and even to neglect Jesus' call for me to follow. Well, that's exactly what happened to Peter here immediately after being restored, immediately after being called to follow again. No sooner had Jesus recommissioned him to follow me and Peter lost his focus turning his attention away from his own spiritual journey to the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wondering what might be God's purpose and plans for him. Right? You just prophesied about what kind of martyr's death I'm going to die to glorify God. So what about John? What about this guy? What's your plan? What's your purpose for him and his Christian life? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with being concerned for the well-being of others, but we miss the mark when we get so preoccupied with what's going on in other people's lives and, and God's will for other believers. And especially, this is probably the most common, when we unhealthily compare his plans for us and his plans for them, which is really what's going on here with Peter. Well, God, this is how you've led me, but I'm curious how you're leading the other guy. What's going on in his life? What's your plan for him? Or maybe more commonly, we we wonder out loud, well, why did you do this for them and not for us? Why did you bless her this way and not me? Why did you call him to this ministry and give him this gifts and not me? Well, Jesus' response to this sort of thing is sharp and swift. He says to Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. Because in the end, that is what you are ultimately responsible for. How you will follow me. When I read this the other week, I was reminded of how Aslan said to Shasta in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy from the Chronicles of Narnia, when asked about his plans for Erebus, and Aslan being the lion who represents Christ in the story, he says, child, I am telling your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Jesus has sovereignly written each of our stories. And our job is to follow him wherever he leads and then watch our stories unfold. Like the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel. And who ends this way. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And it was written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus said. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books. That would be written. So, one of the special tasks that Jesus had for John was to write this inspired account, bearing witness about these things, specifically the signs of Jesus' divinity, so that people could believe that he's the Son of God, as we saw at the end of chapter 20. And also everything else that the Holy Spirit led him to include, which is, I love how John says, if if I wrote everything down, there would be endless books. You know, I was thinking, can you imagine? Uh, You know, we have these read through the Bible in one year plan. (laughs) If John had written every single thing that happened in Jesus' life, that'd be a lot of reading. (laughs) No, he just wrote what the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. That was his part. That was part of his story to, to do that. And praise the Lord for this wonderful gospel that we've been able to study these past months. But again, this was different than Peter's story. And as we read this in the end, we recognize it's different from ours as well. Yet, what we all have in common is this repeated call of Jesus to follow me. Even when, like Peter, you fail. Because as we've now seen in this final chapter, no failure is final. In the Christian life, but rather an opportunity to refocus and to get things right for the rest of the story. Have you ever heard the story of Wrong Way Roy Regals? Well, on New Year's Day, 1929, Georgia Tech played the University of California in the Rolls Bowl. And sometime near the end of the first half, Roy Regals, who played for California, recovered a fumble and he started off running towards the end line, and he ran 65 yards, making it all the way to the one-yard line until Benny Lom, one of his teammates, tackled him just before scoring for the opposing team. Regal had been running the wrong way. Now, After this debacle, when California attempted to punt the other way and get the ball out, Georgia Tech blocked the kick and scored a safety which was the final margin of victory in the end. And uh, you can actually watch old film footage of this online. It's that famous. In fact, it's often cited as the worst blunder in the history of college football. But there's something else that happened to wrong-way regals that day, during and after the halftime break, which maybe has become just as well known, or maybe even more so as the University of California Golden Bears sat in stunned silence in the locker room. Coach Nibs Price didn't say a word until the team got up and was just about to go back out in the field, and he announced that the same team who played the first half would play the second as well, which of course would include Regals. While as the other players filed out, Regals stayed put, slouched over, heads in his hands. He didn't bulge. When Coach Price repeated that the same team would play, Roy looked up with tears in his eyes. He said, Coach, I can't go back on. I can't do it, he said, to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. Coach Price then reached out his hand and put his hand on Regal's shoulder and said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over. So that's what he did. Despite his epic failure that still lives on today, wrong way Regals went back onto the fields. And those who were there said they'd never seen anyone play football like Roy did in that second half. Friends, listen, whatever your fight failures may be, remember, the game is only half over. However you failed Christ, he's not done with you, but he's calling you again to follow me, to keep following him like never before, just as Peter did. Get up and go on back. The game's only half over. That's essentially what the Apostle John is leaving us with at the end of his gospel account. We see in the end of chapter 20, his purpose for this book was to show the signs that Jesus Christ is the Son of God so that we might believe in him and have eternal life. But he now ends with this final point reminding us that though this life of faith will have its failures, it will. We can have hope. We need not give up. We can keep on going because Jesus calls those who fail him to continue to follow him nonetheless. Which is such good news to failures like you and me. So let's thank him for it now as we continue to follow. Lord, we do confess that each and every one of us so often fail you. We fail you every day in small ways and often we fail you in big ways too. And it can be heartbreaking and it can be, have all kinds of very difficult consequences. And it can cause us often to lose our confidence in you and to lessen our commitment and to give up on serving. But as you've reminded us here at the end of the Gospel of John, if we are your people, your followers, if we have believed in you for eternal life, you will never let us go and you will continue to restore us as we come to you in faith for forgiveness. And give us the grace we need to continue to follow and continue to serve. Thank you for that. And Lord, just one last time too, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this sermon today who has not believed in you, Jesus, as the Son of God and received eternal life and begun that life of discipleship, that they would consider doing that today. Because what a joy it is to follow you, to know you, to serve you, to experience and enjoy eternal life now and forever. We thank you for this and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.